Let's talk brands for a minute. It's all about the brand, right? Well, Dickies is the number one brand in performance workwear. And Dickies knows that work is more than just what you do. It's also who you are. And just like pro athletes, your work is going to be judged by how you perform on that job. That's why Dickies Flex work pants and shirts are engineered to give you superior mobility and advanced protection, plus enhanced durability. Dickies Flex is backed with Dickies Unconditional Satisfaction Guarantee, so you know the Flex Series is made to work as hard as you do. Dickies Flex, it's engineered to move, it's engineered to last. You can learn more at Dickies.com. Go to Dickies.com. They were at Live Nightclub, and he had to draw Alex's blood right then and there and send it out. He went into the bathroom, drew A-Rod's blood, and then they went back out to the party where A-Rod had several, you know, VIP tables and friends dancing. And Tony realized that he lost the vial of blood. And the next thing you know, A-Rod, Tony, their friends are on the ground trying to find this vial of blood. Welcome to the Tim Rome Podcast. This is episode 59. My guest, Billy Corbin. Billy's a filmmaker. He's got documentaries such as Cocaine Cowboys, The U, Dogfight on his IMDb page. And his newest film, Screwball, made its U.S. premiere in New York last weekend. This is a great movie. I've seen it. It's awesome. And it tells the incredible story of the Biogenesis scandal, which took down a group of MLBers, including Alex Rodriguez. Now, A-Rod, incredibly, has done a career 180, unlike any I've ever seen. But before he was dating Jenny from the block and breaking down the World Series, he was running with one of the shadiest, most ridiculous cast of characters you will ever see. This story is as pure Florida as it gets. Check out Screwball when it drops in March. Meanwhile, my conversation with Billy Corbin starts right now. Billy, it's great to run you down. I appreciate you making time for this. I've watched Screwball. I think it's great. I think it's smart. I think it's funny. It's outstanding. Before I ask you specifically about the project, just kind of broad-based, you've said it best yourself, quote, our genre is sort of, quote, Florida fuckery. What do you mean by that? What is Florida fuckery, and what is it about that state that continues to produce such crazy headlines and stories over and over again? It never disappoints. Well, thanks for having me. I'm actually a Florida native and a lifelong Miamian, as are my producing partners. And we've noticed uh, through the years that uh, there's a saying I'm very fond of that that goes, um, L.A. is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. And Florida, in general, has always been a sunny place for shady people. Uh, Miami, specifically, has always been like America's Casablanca. It's just a place where people come from all over the world, usually fleeing. Uh, from someone or something, and in, in, invariably wind up in Florida uh, somehow, and um, then uh, they they are able to kind of like hatch these plots and schemes and scams, and uh, and and we just have this unique level of crime because we have people from all over the world that kind of combine in this incendiary uh, mix and create these stories that we now see on a daily basis, this Florida man genre of journalism, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll see every day, you're like, oh, I know it's Florida. You'll see a headline, you'll be like, I know it's Florida. I just know it, and so do we. Look, I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm a California native, but I love it, and I'm kind of envious that that's all in your backyard. You've already crushed it with Cocaine Cowboys and the U, and then the new project is Screwball, which, as I mentioned, I like very, very much. You know, Billy, for those who do not know or do not remember, who is Tony Bosch, and what's he like? Well, Tony Bosch is a, is a Cuban guy uh, whose family was actually very prominent 
uh, Cuban exile uh, family. Um, his dad's cousin, Orlando Bosch, was one of the most famous and notorious uh, Cuban exile terrorists. He actually, uh, in the 1970s, put a bazooka on his shoulder, stood on a causeway, and fired it at a Polish freighter in the port of Miami. Fortunately, the missile didn't arm, so it just hit the side of the freighter and rolled into government cut, rolled <laughs> into the water. Uh, I didn't think he was a good terrorist, I just think he was a famous terrorist. And so Tony had, had been around you know, Miami for his whole life. He, he went to um, uh, Columbus uh, High School, which uh, one of the, the private uh, all-boys schools that is very prominent in the baseball a community of which we have many down here in South Florida. Um, you know, South Florida probably uh, is kind of famous for football, but probably produces uh, just as many, um, if not many more, professional uh, baseball players uh, as well. And um, so Tony, his parents were doctors, and he always dreamed of following in their footsteps. He just didn't seem to have what it took. And so in Miami, we have this sort of very permissive environment that if people are from your home country and you studied some medicine or maybe were or weren't a doctor back at home, people feel comfortable going to you. Um, they feel comfortable being treated by you. And Tony was one of these uh, fake doctors. He doesn't like that, that uh, term, but <laughs> he really was. He was an unlicensed physician, and he was treating people at an anti a series of anti-aging clinic, uh, clinics, these kind of fly-by-night operations where he would be prescribing people uh, testosterone, human growth hormone, steroids. Uh, some of them were legitimate drugs coming from a, um, a series of prescription pads that he had from his father and other legitimate doctors. Uh, and some of them, as it turned out, when demand increased so much, came from a dude's garage in West Kendall, a suburb of, of Miami. Um, this guy was just producing fake testosterone and HGH and, and selling it to people like Tony Bosch who were turning around and prescribing it to, as it turns out, hundreds of professional athletes and, unfortunately, a uh, hundred cops in South Florida and, even worse, uh, children, high school kids, many of whom you know, their parents wanted them to get an edge or an advantage uh, you know, for the up- upcoming uh, MLB draft. Man, there's a ton to unpack in there. So he's treating cops, he's treating wealthy people, he's treating kids, high school kids. You just on that one point right there, kind of sidebar. I mean, was it the kids that wanted the edge or was it the parents who wanted the edge? And I got to say, Billy, not that this is like the most ethical guy, but didn't he know even there was a line right there? This guy's not a doctor and he's prescribing meds to kids whose bodies are still developing? The only lines this guy knows are white and go right up his nose. Uh, that's how... <laughs> That's how he was functioning in those days. He, he admits to us on camera he had a $5,000 a month cocaine habit at this time and that he was trying to keep up with along with his alimony and palimony and, and, uh, and multiple rents and, and everything else. And so he didn't really see that line. A lot of the lines were blurred uh, for him in that, in that period um, when he was operating at his, we'll say, at his, his peak um, then. And, and uh, yes, yeah, so Tony wasn't really didn't really care about things like that. I mean, he was making so much money, too, but he was also burning through it. He tells us that for every dollar he had, he spent two. Uh, so, you know, when, when, and so somebody like Arod or Manny Ramirez would give him, say, 15 grand cash. He would grab his girl, they'd go to New York for a weekend, and they would party and shop until the money was gone. I mean, what kind of way is that, <laughs> is that to operate a, a business, you know? And, and as far as the kids are concerned, I mean, listen, if, if you give your kid... Uh, Adderall, and she gets into Yale, and the other kid at school doesn't, who doesn't take Adderall doesn't get into Yale, that's a performance-enhancing drug. And so I think that, that a lot of that is, 
you know, some of it might come from the kids' own ambitions, but I think a lot of that is from coaches uh, and parents uh, putting that pressure on the kids to get an edge. Well, I think that for sure that's true. I know that's true. I see that here in California, maybe not to that extent, but, I mean, what is this? Parents living vicariously through the kids, and I'm not in any way condoning it, but there's real money, right? If you get a scholarship, that's oh. real money right there, so they're going to do it. In terms of the professional athletes, Billy, how did – I mean, like, so Bosch, he didn't start off – wanting to do that right he loved baseball but when he got into that business and biogenesis opened up was he thinking about working with pro athletes how did he ultimately get there well he was a baseball fan as i said he played a little ball um in high school um not very uh successfully um but he was just he just happened to get into um this trade this uh, anti-aging business um right around the same time you know that the the balco scandal uh, had played itself out um, you had the Mitchell report that came out, and you suddenly had a group of players and coaches and trainers who were not like, oh, now we have to stop using this stuff and do the right thing. They were like, how do we get around the Mitchell report? How do we subvert the new regulations that MLB put in place? And they started to look for a new guy, you know, just like there was a guy out west in Balco. They were looking for the next new guy you know, out east uh, now in Miami, and there's always a guy in Miami. Everybody's got a cousin in Miami, as Jimmy Buffett once sang. Uh, so they, they just, it was just like a, a quirk of timing. You know, he was a baseball fan. Um, this was happening in, in the world of baseball, and he had uh, a theory as to how to work around it that he called microdosing. I don't know how true it was or accurate it was. You know, at some point, a lot of his clients were, were pissing dirty, uh, so I don't know how... Uh, if microdosing actually worked or it was just, you know, just a scheme. Um, but he, he had this way of only taking certain quantities of certain stuff. He would prepare what he called a protocol, and he'd write it down, and then he would have meticulous details on what you should take and when, exactly how much, exactly when, the amount of time prior to a game uh, in the event that you were uh, tested. It shouldn't show up because of the time and everything. And, and again, I don't know if that, was, if that was real. He claims that it was, and the only reason people started pissing dirty was because they weren't following his, his instructions uh, explicitly, and, and they were taking it you know, at the wrong time and, and thus uh, failed some tests. All right, so what about Manny Ramirez? Manny Ramirez, what was he dealing with you know, in terms of where his career was, and how did he find his way to Bosch? Yeah, see, that's the thing is that, like, you know, I have a little bit of sympathy. I mean, you've got these guys who their body is their business. You know, and they're getting they're getting older. They're not able to perform the way they used to. Who 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 of us is whatever it is that we do? You know, very few people get better at stuff when they get older. Um, and baseball players, athletes, certainly certainly not. So you know, they were looking for really a faster way to heal and every advantage that they could that they could get when they were injured. And so um, Manny had a, an agent that that had reached out to Bosch, had heard about him through. You know, the sort of, you know, Cuban, Cuban geography, it's like Jewish geography in Miami. You know, everybody seems to be only a degree or two of separation uh, in that community down here in Miami. And so um, they reached out, and, and Manny became Tony Bosch's first, you know, superstar high-end client. And he was also uh, entering into free agency at the time. And um, the year before he signed with the Dodgers uh, is when uh, Tony started working with him. And that turned into, I think, a $45 million two-year contract. So whatever he was doing, um, you know, something worked. Like I always said this, Billy, the reason these guys do this stuff is because it works or they wouldn't do it. Now, not only was he his first prominent client or, you know, big name client, he also traveled with him. He had not done that before. What was life like for Bosch on the road with Manny? 
Well, I think a lot of baseball fans, especially, have heard the, the phrase Manny being Manny. Right. Um, Tony refers to him as an eccentric character. I think that's polite. He was just an unusual guy um, when they first met. Um, Manny embraces Tony, and then he realizes he's not hugging him. He's actually patting him down, looking for, I guess, wire or something uh, on him. And, and that was just the beginning uh, of what was a very peculiar relationship, including the fact that when they would travel on the road, um, Manny would get a, a suite with, with two beds, you know, with twin beds, and he would insist that Tony would, or somebody would sleep in the same room with him and tell him a bedtime story. He could not get to sleep if the, if the room was empty or it was totally quiet. So Tony would literally have to lie there in bed and keep talking and tell him a bedtime story until Manny finally fell asleep. That's real? That really happened? Like he, Manny really wanted a bedtime story from his pusher? Yes. We, we, we went and verified that uh, with, with several other people uh, who may have participated in, in, in similar activity with Manny just to, just to verify that this was indeed a, a, a real thing that he, that he, that he did. Hey, now, if you're listening to this right now, you already know this, but you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. Listen whenever you want, whenever it's convenient for you. So, why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail your letters and packages when you can get postage on demand? That's right, postage on demand with stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk, 24-7, when it's convenient for you. It's on demand. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier will pick it right up. Just click, print, mail, and you are done. It could not be easier. I do this all the time. I love it because it's easy. It saves me time. It saves me money. My only regret is I didn't start doing it sooner. As an example, Janet's famous Christmas cards are going out soon. I would be lost without Stamps.com. I'm telling you, Stamps.com is an awesome, awesome proposition. Right now, use Rome for this very special offer. It includes up to $55 in free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the very top of the homepage. Type in Rome. Again, Stamps.com. Enter Rome. All right, so Billy, so he, Bosch kept saying, just do what I tell you to do, follow the protocol, you will not get caught, but then Manny got caught, he got busted, what happened, what went wrong? Well, Tony would claim that uh, it was because Manny didn't take it when he told him to take it. He, he forgot about it, took it too close to a playing day, happened to be a day where they you know, took a random piss test, and he got busted. Uh, again, I don't really know if that's true, uh, I, I've had a lot of doubts about and, and nothing we were able to, to, to effectively run down. But you have to wonder, you know, if some of this stuff was placebos, you know, with sugar water or whatever, sugar pills. Um, because a lot, you know, what's the Yogi Berra, half, uh, uh, half the game's 90% mental, you know. So a lot of these guys are superstitious. And maybe uh, just by virtue of the fact that Tony was giving them something real or not real, they played, you know, their performance improved. There's also a question of whether or not they had multiple guys, you know, whether Tony was their only guy or there was somebody else giving them something else because they were looking for, you know, for every, every edge. So uh, there's a lot of questions about that. We'll never, we'll never know for sure. We do know that Manny uh, uh, failed that test.
He failed that test, and then not long thereafter, A-Rod enters into this whole thing. Now, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, A-Rod had already been busted. A-Rod had already been caught lying his ass off on national TV. A-Rod didn't even know Bosch, didn't know him at all, and he knew that he'd been treating Manny and that Manny got busted. But, Billy, none of that mattered to A-Rod, who was out there once again looking for drugs. What does that tell you about A-Rod? Well, I mean, obviously he's, he's a cheater. Um, he's rarely ever acknowledged that. Um, he never had to do the mea culpa tour, you know, that uh, uh, Lance Armstrong, for example, did, and everybody still hates that guy. Um, so you, you still, plus he's got one ball. So uh, he's, he's fucked twice, that uh, Lance Armstrong. But uh, A-Rod, meanwhile, um, you know, never really apologized, never really fessed up, um, but just lied time and again. And there's this great clip when, uh, about February of 2009. It was right around the time that uh, University of Miami dedicated A-Rod, you know, uh, uh, stadium at uh, Mark Light Field, um, their, their college baseball stadium at the University of Miami. And um, Alex was put on the spot because it was the same week that the Sports Illustrated story ran about him having used steroids back in a 103 uh, time period. And he doesn't really apologize so much as he says, um, don't judge me about what I did in the past. Judge me moving forward. And it's a kind of a, a wonderful moment of, of irony because the audience realizes we're still in the beginning of the movie here. <laughs> so, right. So we know that Alex is going to soon be a client of Tony Bosch, and, and if we're going to judge him by his behavior moving forward, um, it's, not, it's, it's not good. This guy is just pathological, right? Judge me by what I do going forward, and he starts doing what he did in the past. Like, what kind of stats was Alex thinking about when he first started with Bosch? Honestly, I think it was more of him just thinking about healing faster. Hmm. I think he was injured at the time, as I recall, right around that time period. And, and I think he was just trying to get well. You know, I think he, he was just looking for every advantage. And there's, like I said earlier, there's something to be said for that. You know, there's something to be said. I mean, Tommy John surgery, for crying out loud. That's some bionic man shit. You know, isn't, isn't that cheating? Isn't that performance uh, enhancing? It seems that there's a certain arbitrariness to, to what... Uh, to, to what might be allowed here in, in, in baseball. The problem is, of course, is that the majority of the players in the, in the union um, you know, aren't interested in, in cheating. They aren't interested in poisoning their bodies and possibly putting their future, you know, their offspring at risk. Um, and they don't want to have to, to cheat to get an edge. But then there's a certain number of guys who, who do and who will, uh, who will stop at nothing to, to ensure that they can keep playing. And I think really, I mean, what has to happen is guys just have to acknowledge, you know, I call it Superman syndrome. We did a documentary called Broke about professional athletes going broke, and a lot of these guys think that they're just going to play forever when it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know physically you can't, you can't do that. So, I mean, at some point these guys just got to face reality uh, and let it go. They can't let it go, though, a lot of these guys, right? They don't want to give up the life. They don't want to give up how it feels. They want to continue to compete and perform, and then they'll do what they have to do. Now, as an example, A-Rod, so he starts to work with Bosch, and he loves what Bosch is doing for him. He loves how it makes him feel. What about Bosch? Like, he had to find these guys. Like, what were some examples of some really weird places where he'd shoot them up? Like, did he really shoot up A-Rod in the nightclub, in the live nightclub? Well, close to he, he actually drew blood from him. He, you know, Tony had these weird, quirky rules himself, you know, it, these protocols. And one of the things he would do is when they were in town, or he was traveling with them, he would draw blood from them and send it out and run tests on it. For what, I'm not exactly sure. He wanted to see if things were having an impact. He wanted to see if any banned substances were, you know, were, were coming up in the screening. And he wanted to see if he needed to do anything to change 
up the protocol to make sure that these guys uh, were, were you know, getting maximum effect. And so he decided, for whatever reason, they were at Live Nightclub at the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach, and, uh, and he had to draw Alex's blood right then and there and send it out, because that was the only time they were going to be together for, 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 for that week. And he went into the bathroom, the men's room at Live. They sat on a toilet. Um, he drew A-Rod's blood, and then they went back out to the party where A-Rod had several, you know, VIP tables and bottles and, and friends dancing. And Tony realized that he lost the vial of blood. He had apparently dropped it somewhere, and he had no idea where it was. And the next thing you know, all these guys, A-Rod, Tony, their friends are on the ground trying to find this vial of blood that, uh, <laughs> that he lost. Quick shout-out to Bethesda Game Studios, the award-winning creators of Skyrim and Fallout 4. Welcome you to Fallout 76 the online prequel where every surviving human is a real person, work together or not to survive. Under the threat of nuclear annihilation, you will experience the largest, most dynamic world ever created in the legendary Fallout universe. Reclamation Day 2102, 25 years after the bombs fall, you and your fellow vault dwellers, chosen from the nation's best and brightest, emerge into post-nuclear America. Play solo or join together as you explore, quest, build, and triumph against the Wasteland's greatest threats. Fallout 76 will be available worldwide on Wednesday, November 14th. Games play best on Xbox One. All right, so Bosch is killing it. He's got celebrity clients. He's making a ton of money. He's living the life. He's partying hard. What about this character, Porter Fisher? Who is that, and what is he like? Well, Porter Fisher is basically a, he was a tanorexic client of Tony Bosch who met him at this tanning salon at one of the, like I said, fly-by-night uh, anti-aging clinic operations that Tony Bosch had. And he became a fan. He became a fanboy of Tony Bosch. And when Tony Bosch had a falling out with the owners of this uh, tanning clinic, he moved to another place in the neighborhood, and, and Porter Fisher went on a, a hunt to find him and ultimately did and became a client of, of what was now called the Biogenesis uh, Lab. And um, he was a huge fan and wanted to help the business because um, he felt he was a walking billboard. He got real results from Tony Bosch. He wanted to look like Sylvester Stallone, and Tony Bosch made that happen. Um, this is a guy in his 50s who was uh, you know, not really seeing results in the gym, and Tony Bosch was making it happen for him. And so he, um, he wanted to join the team and help marketing uh, of, uh, you know, market this business. The problem was is that Tony was essentially a... A drug dealer it would be like, you know, saying your co- to your cocaine dealer, I love your work. I want to put you on television. You know, we'll have, put you on Good Morning America and, uh, you know, we'll run some ads in the Miami Herald and, and we'll really pick up business here. Obviously, he couldn't. Tony Bosch couldn't do that, but Porter Fisher didn't really understand that and didn't know that this guy wasn't a real doctor and didn't know that he was trading essentially in illegal drugs. So then he, but he keeps hanging around because he's a fanboy, which to me is really funny. He like he's not a fanboy of the professional athlete, but he's a fanboy of the fake doctor. Although don't call him a fake doctor, he doesn't like that. But he's hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. And I want to help you guys. I want to help you with marketing. And then finally, Bosch says, "You know what? You want to help me? You can invest in the company." What happened then? Yeah, well, it's wild to think about it, but the best way to put it is that you know the highest paid baseball player of all time, his career ended over a four thousand dollar debt. Between right. this coke addicted fake doctor and his tanorexic steroid patient, I mean that's really what happened. And and Alex Rodriguez and all of these high profile superstar athletes were just collateral damage in this beef between Porter Fisher and Tony Bosch, which is crazy. Lay this out, Billy. That the four thousand dollar beef. This is essentially this is one of the biggest scandals ever. That came down to a four thousand dollar beef. What was the beef? What happened? 
Well, the beef was, you know, Porter wanted to get involved. Uh, finally, Tony was like, okay, I'll take your money. He had come into some money in an insurance uh, claim in a, uh, after a car accident, and um, he invested quote-unquote, or loans it to Tony Bosch. Again, depending on who you ask, um, you'll get different answers. And he was promised his money back with some interest. And Tony basically, I think, was putting that money right up his nose at that time and basically told him to go pound sand. And Porter Fisher says, screw this guy, and starts to go through his medical records, which are really nothing more than composition books and, and some fo- folders with a bunch of handwritten notes and post-its and things. And he discovers that it's sort of a treasure trove in here and that there's these professional ball players in here and high school and college ball players in here. And he takes them and he goes to the Miami New Times and essentially you know, becomes the whistleblower in this whole case. All right, so what you have here is a tanorexic fanboy who's absolutely enraged that he's not getting respect, he's not getting his money. At this point, I understand that Bosch doesn't have money. I understand that Bosch is putting a bunch of blow up his nose. How does he not come up with four grand just to make this guy and this whole thing go away? It was a miscalculation. He essentially admits that. <laughs> he probably just should have paid the money because ultimately it was much less of a cost than he ultimately paid for it, which was you know, ruining his life and the lives of many other people. But um, he just didn't calculate it at the time. Like I said, his, his business was falling apart. His clients were pissing dirty. Uh, he was being investigated by multiple local, state, and federal agencies, including the DEA, the Health Department, Major League Baseball, uh, sent some investigators to Miami, uh, A-Rod's uh, private investigators running around town, and he just miscalculated it. He just didn't, he just, it was, I don't know if it was ego, the drugs, what it was, but he just didn't think that this was going to blow up the way that it did. All right, so that story drops, all hell breaks loose, Fisher freaks out, Bosch is upset, obviously, and then MLB gets involved. MLB does its own investigation. They come into Miami, and they start doing their own thing. How scummy and how sleazy was Major League Baseball in pursuit of Alex Rodriguez? Ryan Braun's name dropped, we can get into that even, but how scummy were they in their pursuit of the information? Well, they would stop at nothing. I mean, after the Balco scandal, they created this sort of internal investigations unit, this FBI of Major League Baseball, that they would dispatch out to various places so they could investigate all of these scandals as they erupted. And they had these guys who were essentially former law enforcement who operated with impunity. They didn't think they had to follow any rules or any laws, and they were sleeping with witnesses. They were carrying around bags full of cash from some MLB slush fund that they would pay $125,000 to a convicted felon, a, a huge money launderer from, uh, out of uh, Connecticut who had moved down to Miami to start a new life as a tanning bed technician. And now this guy was uh, stealing the documents from Porter and selling them to MLB and then turning around and selling them to A-Rod and just creating this sort of cottage industry out of these biogenesis uh, files. And, um, yeah, it's a really toss-up. We, we debated a little bit in the movie, like, who looks worse in the end, uh, A-Rod or, <laughs> or MLB, because MLB looks pretty pretty terrible with the way that they carried on down in Miami. Well, super scummy. And then all of a sudden, Bosch finally decides in the end, all right, got to ally myself with somebody. Is it going to be A-Rod who's going to battle with Major League Baseball or baseball? What was that thought process like for Bosch, and how did he end up making that decision? Yeah, the way he puts it is that, you know, A-Rod was an eccentric millionaire, but baseball was you know, eccentric multi-billionaires, and they just had more money to offer. And, and also to the point, to be fair, uh, everything Alex wanted him to do involved lying, involved shutting his mouth, flying to Columbia and laying low for a while, uh, not telling the truth about what happened. Uh, Major League Baseball was not only willing to cover security expenses, uh, legal expenses, etc., but they were also, they wanted the truth. They wanted Tony Bosch to tell the truth about what really happened. And so he ultimately took them up on their offer and became the star witness against A-Rod. So what did A-Rod offer him? 
Aaron offered him like fifty grand, like I said, like a trip to Colombia to, to lay low. Um, it wasn't. It was certainly nowhere near the the, the ballpark that um, that MLB was playing in. No pun intended. I mean, they wound up dropping well over four million dollars uh, on Tony Bosch, not paying him cash per se, but but in all of these expenses that they covered over the several years that he was working with them. No matter how big or small your team is. Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, count on Ferguson. All right, so, I mean, you spin this thing out, and Bosch, the DEA ultimately runs down Bosch, and he's arrested, and he goes to the penitentiary. But, Billy, look at A-Rod today. I mean, back then, I'm doing this show. And, and by the way, thank you for putting me in the movie. I appreciate that very much. It <laughs> great was cameo. great. Great line. Thank you very much. But in that, at that time, when the, the clip that you used, when I'm talking about him on these shows, I'm telling you, people hate this guy's guts. And I don't mean a few people. I mean most people. Now he's like, as you point out, a beloved figure in pop culture. And he's like the voice of Sunday Night Baseball. What happened? How did this thing turn for him? Listen, I never knock another guy's hustle. I mean, bless his heart that he's been able to reinvent himself this way. And as you said, he was never beloved. So it isn't even like he got those fans back. He got fans he never knew uh, he had before and that he never had uh, before. It's bizarre. He was never uh, liked. You know, he was never a beloved uh, figure. But, you know, bless his heart, he managed to, to sort of reinvent himself and uh, without ever having to apologize for what he actually did. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think it's pretty terrible in light of when you get a chance to review the facts, you know, in Screwball, you're like, wow, this is, this is actually really awful what, what he did here. And never had to apologize for it. I mean, I think it's amazing. I, I don't, like I said, I don't knock his hustle. I mean, it's, it's incredible that he was able to, 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 to continue to have this career like this. But I think it's, you know, to me, it's sort of the, um, the message to our children is like, is bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's the, I call it the new American core values. You know, when we grew up, our parents told us, you know, honesty, integrity, the golden rule, you know, treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. And now it's like the message is lie, cheat, and steal. You know, lie, cheat, and steal, and you could become the new commissioner of Major League Baseball, because Bob Manfred was the head of the biogenesis investigation when he was number two uh, at MLB under Bud, Bud Selig. Um, lie, cheat, and steal, and you'll not only become the highest-paid baseball player of all time, but you'll also have a new multimillion-dollar career as a beloved broadcaster in the game. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you two kids could become the president. I mean, th- th- these are the new American core values, and I think that's ultimately what you, know, you walk away from this movie with, and you're like, oh, shit got dark. Shit got dark. Shit got really dark. You know, Billy, something else about the movie. You tell the story through child actors. Where did the idea come from, and why do you use that device? Well, originally, the seed of it was back in 97. Uh, Spike Jones uh, was doing uh, a, mu- a music video called Sky's the Limit for Biggie. It was a posthumous video, and he was faced with this challenge of, like, what do we do um, with Biggie gone? And so he decided that he would shoot a straightforward real bad boy records music video, you know, circa mid to late 90s with the cars and the mansions and the hot tubs and the girls, but they'd all be like eight years old. So you had Baby Biggie and Baby Puffy and Baby Busta Rhymes, and I think there's Baby Lil' Kim in there, and, and it's just, it's hilarious, but it's very, it, it works. And um, we had a similar situation here where, you know, we make a documentary like The U, for example. You interview a bunch of coaches, you interview a bunch of players, and then you get a bunch of game footage. You know, they cite particular games and they're, they're citing you know uh, bowl games and national championships and so you just use that footage where appropriate here 
there was no footage. The whole movie takes place in, you know, in the clinic and in locker rooms and in nightclubs and shady sports bars and everything. And so we needed, you know, something to sort of <laughs> illustrate the story. And we knew we were going to have to do recrees, recreations. Um, and fortunately, we had two guys in Tony Bosch and and uh, Porter Fisher, our central interview figures, uh, who are very vivid in their storytelling. You know, they do a lot of dialogue, like, this guy said this, and then I said this, and then he said this, and then I said this. So we kind of, I was watching, I was like, wow, I was like, we could really do this drunk history style where the actors and the recreations would be lip-syncing the interview subjects uh, dialogue. And then I took it one step further, and I said, but all these guys acted like such children, all of them, that maybe we should just do it with eight-year-old kids. And, uh, <laughs> and Screwball was born. And it works so well. You know, we talked about the U, Cocaine Cowboys. I want to ask you really quickly about your movie Dogfight. It's about the world of backyard fights in South Florida. It is wild. I mean, really wild. The world where Kimbo Slice was discovered, other MMA fighters have come out of backyard fights. How did you first find out about those fights, and are they still going on? Yeah, there was... um. There was a great story in the Miami New Times, in fact, actually, same place where a screwball broke. Um, and they had covered these unsanctioned bare-knuckle brawls, and specifically this, um, uh, this protege of Kimbo Slice, who used to run with Team Kimbo, Dada 5000. And this guy made himself into the uh, Don King of the backyards and started promoting these events as if they were legitimate, you know, like as, as block parties. And um, they, they blew up, and uh, we went and spent years covering some of the fighters um, and Dada and his family, and I will tell you that um, over the, the course of those years, uh, you know, some guys went pro directly from the backyard, and other guys didn't live that long. Um, and so we're actually doing a sequel called Dogfight Round 2 uh, with Dada and his family um, that we hope to have uh, done by the end of uh, 2019. Phil, so, I mean, Billy, when you do that as a filmmaker, can you kind of separate yourself from it and just kind of attack the art to it? Or do you look at that sometimes and say, man, this is fucked up. This is really disturbing. I'm not sure this is really what I want to do. I, I was sure I wanted to do it, but it was a devastating experience. I mean, it was a very emotional experience. Some of these guys, you know, who you'd forged a relationship with start getting killed. And um, it was really... It was really depressing, and we couldn't get the movie sold either. We, we had gone out with it, and nobody would, would buy it or show it, and, and um, you know, uh, we heard things like, it's too urban, it's too violent, it's too real, and I was like, what does that even mean? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, these are all the things of American pop culture that audiences love, and, and we just couldn't get it, couldn't get it sold. And, and finally, um, when one of the, the fighters, the second, our uh, third fighter died, um, I was just like, we just have to release this on our own. And we put our own money, you know, and on our own time, and own dime, um, finished the movie and, and released it. And, and I, I'm, I think it's, it's some of our best work. And, and thankfully, Netflix uh, picked it up. And, and you can watch Dogfight, D-A-W-G. People think it's a Michael Vick, you know, 30 for 30. It's a mm. D-A-W-G Dogfight on Netflix. Good, good. Listen, one last thought. The documentary you really broke out with, of course, Cocaine Cowboys, an absolutely amazing look into the Colombian coke trade that infiltrated Miami back in the 80s. I mean, every pot dealer in Miami became a Coke dealer almost overnight. The money was crazy. So crazy, the Miami Federal Reserve had a surplus of $5 billion, with a B, in cash, and which was more than all the other Federal Reserves combined. I mean, there are turf wars, and there's blood all over the street. For those who have not seen that, can you describe Miami as a city during that time that Cocaine Cowboys documented? Well, I mean, it was like the gold rush, but it was a drug rush, you know, it was a cocaine rush. And, and there was so much money um, in every facet of the community from narco dollars that were being generated that eventually trickled down into infrastructure and, and every legitimate trade and business and retailer that was also uh, in, 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 in the city. And um, 
you know, car dealers, grocers, jewelers, uh, bars, uh, nightclubs, everything. So you, you just had um, just sort of this, this great sort of Dodge City-esque environment where people were just, you know, striking gold and spending money and buying houses. And it's probably the only example of Reagan's trickle-down economics that is successful um, uh, was the drug trade here in, in Miami in the 1980s. And, and nobody really cared about it. Everybody was thrilled with the drugs and the money. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, of Screwball, where it was like, as long as guys were cheating and the home run race was on and, and it brought play, you know, uh, audiences back to uh, you know, Major League Baseball after the strike, nobody cared. But it was when finally Congress said, you better police this or we will. It's kind of the same thing down here in Miami. It's like everybody loved the drugs, they loved the money, but as soon as the violence broke out, you know, uh, the feds finally said, you need, to, you need to do something about this. And that's sort of the commonalities here, you know, in like Screwball and Cooking Cowboys and, and Dogfight. It's, it's, it's in Miami, and it's the American dream by any means necessary. All right, so finally, what about 2018? Miami in 2018, what's it like right now? Is the American dream still alive right there? Is it still a cocaine capital? What's Miami like in 2018? Oh, no, Jim, there's no drugs in Miami. No, anymore. I didn't think. I didn't think. Uh, no violence either, right? <laughs> No sex, no drugs. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the Florida of today is the America of tomorrow. You know, if you want to know what what challenges we'll face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the in the years to come, you need need only look at 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 Florida, specifically South Florida. And so, there's a lot of clues down here as to how this is all uh, going to play out. And I, and I don't know that it's a lot of good news. So. Uh... <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so now, Billy, I've seen Screwball. I love it. I've already got it, so I've seen it. But when does it officially drop, and then how can people see it? Yes, March, just in time for baseball season. Uh, I can't say much more yet, but if you know, follow me on Twitter, Billy Corbin, C-O-R-B-E-N, uh, and I'm going to be constantly uh, updating uh, with the latest. But in March 2019, just in time for baseball season, everybody in the world will get a chance to see it. All right, listen, I, I appreciate you making time for this right now. Do this for me. When the thing does officially drop, when you have an official date, why don't you come back on a radio slash TV show and we can talk it up for that audience too. I can't curse though, right? No, you no, cannot fuck. curse. All right, then. I'll do it anyway, though. Yeah, all right, if you if you can somehow stay in your shoes and not drop any f bombs, but you know how this is, right? You got to know your room. You have to know your room. If you want to <laughs> curse again, you can come back here, but there you can't do it. Awesome. Fair enough. I'll be there. Quick shout out to all my pals who are building professionals. I know you're out there. Listen up. If you're a contractor or a builder or a remodeler, Lumber Liquidators Pro Plus is the only partner that you're ever going to need for all of your flooring needs. Here's why. With special pro-only pricing and dedicated support, LL Pro Plus will help you get your flooring jobs done quickly and profitably. And that's what we all want, right? To get the job done fast and to make as much money as we can off that job. Are you worried about selection and availability? Do not be. Because Lumber Liquidators has over 150 million square feet of flooring available with over 100,000 square feet in nearly every one of their stores. And they stock professional grade adhesives, underlayment, molding, tools, fasteners, and grout so you get exactly what you need. If you're too busy to pick up the flooring, that's not an issue either because the LL Pro Plus team will deliver it right to your job. And with LL Pro Plus, you can even get a business line of credit. So put the LL Pro Plus flooring experts on your team right now. Visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com slash ProSales. Once again, walk right into a store or go to LumberLiquidators.com slash ProSales today. My man is all 305. My sincerest thanks to Billy Corbin for that conversation. If you're listening to this right now, get my dude on social. I want him to know that you heard him right here. Tweet at him, at Billy Corbin on Twitter. 
at Billy, C-O-R-B-E-N, at Billy Corbin on Twitter. Throw my handle in there, too. Let him know you heard him on the Jim Rohn Podcast. And while you're here, one more thing. Can you get subscribed and leave a review? Let's keep this thing growing. I keep hearing from so many people how much they enjoy the pod. I love hearing that. So let's go ahead and share it and grow it and get it to even more people. No voicemails this week, but we'll hit you with a double batch on Ep 60. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm out.